This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels that you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this recording is taking place on Tuesday, the 27th of April of 2020. Today, my guest is folklorist, filmmaker, poet, and founder of City Lore in New York City, Steve Zeitlin. Steve's going to be talking about his book, The Poetry of Everyday Life, Storytelling and the Art of Awareness. Steve Zeitlin, welcome to the New Books in Folklore podcast. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's great to be here. Steve, I was just reading a review of this book written by Amy Schumann, and it begins with the words, buy this book, give a copy to a friend, make it required reading for your classes. So that was a very enthusiastic uh, review. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing you talk about it. But before we get to the book, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself. We tend to ask our guests, how they came to be a folklorist, that folklore origin story, or folklorist origin story, it's better said. So I'll start in the middle. Um, when I was a graduate student in the English literature at Bucknell, um, I was taking a break from my studies and wandering through the library shelves, and I came across a book called The Folklore of New York City. And it was written by somebody uh, who lived not far from where I live now, Benjamin Botkin. And I opened it to a random page, and I saw there was a collection of children's rhymes collected during the WPA by writers, the Work Progress Administration during the 1930s, hired writers to go out and collect folklore. And one of the books that came out of it some years after that was Benjamin Botkin's The Folklore of New York City. And a rhyme that I remember having read in that book goes, I should worry, I should care, I should marry a millionaire. He should die, I should cry, I should marry another guy. And I remember thinking, God, that is such a great children's rhyme. And what better job could could, could, could there be for me a 60s child, than to go out and collect folklore. And I later discovered that there was a PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania that could give you a PhD in folklore. And I called them up and I went for an interview with the chairman of that folklore program, whose name was Kenny Goldstein. And he told me that folklore was a religion and folklorists were its missionaries. And if I wanted to, I could sign up. 
and I did. <laughs> Looking back um, through the years at, at my childhood, I remember that uh, my brother and I, who both of us lived in Brazil, uh, we were kind of expats living in Brazil with my parents, and we had a lot of expressions that we used with each other. And to this day, we call each other, yo, sire. You know, Murray once said that it was out of respect, uh, but it was part of our own folklore. And one day he was passing out chiclets at our apartment at the beach. And instead of taking one, I took like 10 and I was chewing them. And he said, he said, he's, he said, well, why don't you just jump off the 15th story window for a breeze on a hot day? And that became an expression for all of my excesses, jumping off the 15th story window for a breeze on a hot day. And it seems like such a little thing, but it's such a, a marker of my relationship with my brother and, and the humor that we developed together over the years. And I, I really do feel like that's what drove me to become a folklorist, sort of understanding that these little tiny uh, jokes and, and the artistry that passes between two people two people who are in family, two people who are in love, uh, is really where the heart of life really lies. And so going into folklore seemed to be a pretty natural thing for me. That's a lovely story. And what you've just talked about actually kind of encapsulates what the poetry of everyday life is about, really. I mean, when you asked me how I became a folklorist, to, as an introduction to how I wrote this book, I feel like in many ways the book, you know, is a, a mirror of the many dimensions in which the poetry of everyday life has been part of my life. Um, and that I, felt, I feel like everything that I've done as a folklorist has been leading up to writing this book. It's, it's each chapter whether it's a chapter about science or about the AIDS crisis or about the poetry that was written after September 11th um, or about uh, the, the uh, voices, the wonderful poems that my, my students wrote in my class called Writing New York Stories at Cooper Union, uh, or whether it's, it's about the poem mobile that we drive around and projects poems onto walls and buildings. Uh, so, so every... Every element of my life, I've tried to, uh, as a folklorist, I see my life through a folkloric lens in which art is part of every aspect of my, of my own daily life. And I've tried to express that in the book, uh, thinking that I can't, of course, this is my life and your life is different. But I'm giving you kind of a set of glasses uh, through which to see your life through the artistry that's embedded in it. So when you're talking about the poetry of everyday life, you're not actually just talking about poetry in terms of artistically arranged words. You're talking about it in a broader sense, right? Yes. I'm talking about the poetics of life, of which actual poetry may be a small part of or may not be. Uh, but the uh, poetics of life is there for everybody. Uh, it's there, you know, when my hairstylist uh, tells me that uh, 
she 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 remembers that she had cut my hair like three or four years before. And I say, well, how could you possibly know that? And she says, well, you always know you're cut. Uh, you know, uh, or when uh, or when uh, Javi, who worked at the coffee shop that I work on, told me that the uh, that the counter was his stage. You know, his counter where he served coffee was his stage, and he was in fact in show business. Um, you know, these are all uh, for me just as much of a poem as you know as the poetry that you read in school. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm always looking at it in that way. Um, one, one of the things that I have taken a lot of inspiration from is a definition of folklore that was written by Mary Hufford. She says, folk life is often hidden in plain view, lodged in the various ways we have of discovering and expressing who we are and how we fit into the world. Folk life is reflected in the names we bear from birth, invoking affinities with saints, ancestors, or cultural heroes. Folk life is your grandfather and great uncles telling stories of your father when he was a boy. It is the secret languages of children, the code names of CB operators, and the working slang of watermen and doctors. It is the sung parodies of the battle hymn of the Republic, which we used to sing as kids, and parables told in church or home to delight and instruct. It is African-American rhythms embedded in gospel hymns, bluegrass music, and hip-hop, and it is the Lakota flutist rendering anew his people's ancient courtship songs. So folk life, uh, which I'm in this book calling the poetry of everyday life, is part of all those things. Uh, it's what Del Himes a very well-known sociolinguist and folklorist, once called the shaping of deeply felt values into meaningful form that's present in all communities. So what I try to do is, is look at not only the poetry as in poetry, but the poetics of everyday life, and to see that the poetics of everyday life is, is, is what makes everybody's life meaningful and worth living. Even at a time when the COVID virus is overtaking us, you know, we've tried to chronicle at City Lore the incredible amount of poetry in the sense of song parodies, uh, poems themselves, signs written on stores that are closed, and try to collect that because it's not only the poetry of everyday life, but it's also in many ways how we want to be remembered, you know, how we fought back, how we expressed our humanity in the wake of a terrible pandemic. Um, we've even started uh, a, an online poem, which anybody can contribute to, which is called It Takes a Pandemic, uh, where people are writing about the horror of the pandemic, It Takes a Pandemic, and also about uh, you know, taking out a bottle of liquor for the cabinet for the first time and taking a drink from their favorite bottle of bourbon or uh, all the many things that people are, are, are finding themselves doing now that they're at home. So, I, and, and seeing what we're trying to do now, I, I think of what we did trying to collect some of the stories from the AIDS crisis, uh, the poems and the uh, 
expressions that were were collected as uh, by Lila Zeiger, who was a good friend of ours, who was a uh, working as a social worker at the Greenwich Village Community House. So, and we see it also in the the poetry that was left everywhere after September 11th. So, uh, and we we see it in the uh, essay of one of the people who's in the book a lot, Keoli Kamara, who is from Sierra Leone, who just wrote an essay that we published online as part of the poetry of everyday life called The Mysterious Traveler, looking back at the coronavirus from 10,000 years from now. And um, what, what he talks about is that uh, trying to encourage a way of thinking, it, not just thinking about what we're going through, but thinking about how we want things to be remembered. And that, and that that's equally important or more important as we try to survive all the many things that we're dealing with right now. Right. So as I said in my introduction, we're recording this in April 2020. So we're kind of still in the midst of lockdown in the USA. Some states are kind of gradually going to be easing out of it soon, but who knows what's going to happen next. But anyway, Steve, I absolutely loved this introduction. I thought it was fantastic. I, I want to give it to everyone who ever asked me why I'm a folklorist and what folklore is about. It's like it sums everything up. And you say, I explore the many ways that we artify, storify and poeticize our daily lives. And it's like, yes, that's what we do. <laughs> artify, not ossify, artify. <laughs> I did say artify. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not ossify. <laughs> Definitely not ossify. So you've divided the book into a, a series of sections. We've got poetry and people, poetry and play, poetry and service, poetry and the life cycle, poetry and you, and poetry and stone. How did you come up with these different sections? If you're talking about the poetry of everyday life, in some ways you're talking about life itself, and these these categories sort of with the way that I, I could make sense of it, of make sense of life and poetry and everyday life, because I started with the amazing characters that I've gotten to meet as a folklorist, uh, the, the inc incredible poetic souls uh, that, that have inspired me. Um, you know, one of them was, I begin with a homeless friend of mine named Tony Butler, who passed away some years after I, I some years ago? Uh, who taught me about you know the philosophy of wrong? I mean, which comes to me all the time, even in a case with this current lockdown. Uh, you know, so many things go wrong, and not enough things go right. The world is geared to go wrong. Wrong is king. Wrong rules. <laughs> And he told me that just spontaneously, you know, as we're standing on a subway platform and he's a, a homeless guy and uh, he just had such wisdom. He described the people going to work really early in the morning as the working poor. And then he says, isn't that a contradiction? The working poor. He said, that's why I don't work. And he would give uh, make announcements for people that were that he thought were lost on the subway as the volunteer transit associate, keeping uh, since the announcements were all garbled in the New York City subways and still usually are to this day. He would find it upon himself to stand there and and make clearer announcements as the volunteer transit associate. Um, you know, Keoli, who I talked about who just wrote that wonderful essay on looking back at COVID 10,000 years from now, has these wonderful lines. 
If I tell you my name is Keoli, that might not mean a lot to you. But if I tell you that I am the son of Kamara and Mara, and I come from the village of Dankawali at the foothills of the Great Loma Mountains near the mouth of the River Niger, that starts to mean something. All of a sudden, I am part of something much greater. A child to be praised may be just a little boy, but pointing out who his father is and who his grandfather is in a praise poem elevates that person. It's not saying that a person has a lot of money or that he is the president of the United States, but that he is a father or mother or a grandfather or a grandmother, and that's important enough. Wonderful, uh, wonderful people like that. Uh, my friend, Andy Lanzalato, uh, who has made the, it's a Bronx tomboy, grew up in the Bronx, playing on the streets of New York with the New York City distinctive ball that was called the Spalding, which was a New Yorkism for the ball that became ubiquitous on New York City streets. And she talked about how Spaldines took on the smell of the street. Spaldines sweated and got dirty. Spaldines taught me soul to find adventure, to fly, to roll, to hide, to float, to be buoyant, to bounce back, even after they rolled down the sewer. At night, I'd wash my hands and face and my Spaldine. And she goes on from that. And then she talks about how she was a, a cancer survivor with very early on from when she went to college. She was diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer, which she thankfully survived, and how the Spaldine became a metaphor for her. Um, she, she, uh, she, all through her life, she's been able to bounce back, and she kind of took that New York City ball as a metaphor. And a lot of the poetry of everyday life is partly in the metaphors that we use to describe our lives as well. So I began the book with people. One of my favorites from this section is the former medicine show doctor, Fred Bloodgood, who never uses one word when he could use four. <laughs> never use one word when four will suffice. <laughs> <laughs> and he described, I think you wrote, right, Bloodgood presented glittering galaxies of gorgeously gowned girls and featured, among others, Tilly Tashman, that teasing, tantalizing, tormenting, tempestuous, tall tan torso twister from Texas. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I I I loved Fred Bloodgood so much. Uh, we 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 created an old fashioned medicine show at the Smithsonian years back, and that's how I met him. And uh, you know, he he had these poetic ways that he used on the carnival back in the nineteen twenties and thirties that had so much real poetry in them. Uh, my favorite one was the uh, the geek. The geek was a, a, a kind of local drunk who was paid to bite off the head of a snake as part of a show or a chicken in the head of in one of these old fashioned small sideshows that would travel around the U.S. And here's his here's his uh, pitch for it. When I throw that live chicken you see me now holding deep down into that steel bound cage you're going to see a most amazing change come over the old woman. The eyes will dilate. The pupils glow just like two red-hot coals of fire. You'll hear her emit just one long, soul-searing scream, and then she'll leap clear across that steel-bound arena 
catch that bird between those massive jaws, bite off the head with those long and tusky teeth, and then, ladies and gentlemen, you'll see her suck, drain, and draw every drop of blood from that bleeding, throbbing, quivering, pulsating body with the very same relish as you or I would suck the juice of an orange. It's one of the most disgusting, one of the most repulsive, yet I'll say one of the most interesting sights you've seen in all your life. And with that, he would try to get people to pay 25 cents to come and see this attraction. Oh my when God. really they seen the real attraction, which was his poem. And, and for me, I, I just get so much pleasure in, in reading that back to you. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> Although I don't think I would have paid my 25 cents. That sounds absolutely revolting. <laughs> So, yes, tell us what else is in this first section. I've talked a little bit about some of the people about this. And, and uh, one of the other things I, I talk about next is, is the poetry that's in language, in, in family expressions, uh, which were things like jumping off the 15th story window on a breeze on a hot day. Um, one of my favorite parts of that uh, from a student of mine and later a friend called Virginia Randall, talks about all the wonderful expressions that she had with her, uh, with her husband uh, in the years be before he passed away and, and how sad it was before he passed away. Uh, one of them was from their Uncle Joe, uh, which the expression was pulling an Uncle Joe because her Uncle Joe once had said to his wife, after his wife had clearly gotten the better of him, saying, you know, sometimes you have to be willing to lose an argument. And so they would use that with one another when one of them was just saying, okay, I have to lose the argument. I'll pull an Uncle Joe. And she ended her, the little piece that she wrote for, for us uh, about her vision of the language that they shared together. And uh, she thought it was like her mother losing her Italian, you know, the Italian that she started to lose as her, as her mother got older. But now she describes the fact that once he died, she wrote, I'm the last speaker of us now. You know, it was a world of two. You know, many of the world we live in are a world of two. And um, when one of the person dies, as inevitably they do, you know, the other one is the last speaker of us now. That's that, that's part of that, and another part of the first section is uh, with which is all about uh, people too. Is is about humor, just about you know the value of humor, um, and it goes back to that idea of a world of two. I talk about how you know married couples are in a sense uh, comedy teams. You know, to each other. You know, there's there's uh, one oftentimes a straight man and a and a comedian in any relationship, uh, and I talk about that because I feel that that uh, humor is a major part of the poetry of everyday life. Absolutely. One of the things that made me laugh was your story that starts the last section in that first part of the book, where you're talking about how the light switch in the city law office was actually in the office next door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so cause they put up a wall between the two offices and forgot to move the light. 
And so the woman who worked in the office next to me, I always have to go into her office to turn on the lights. And our humor together, which was always the silliest kind of humor, uh, was the turning on that light switch. You know, that light switch was, uh, was our laughter. It was actually a, an absolutely ridiculous situation. I've kind of it's weird though because I've got a similar situation at, at the place where I live, which is a a modern condo, you know, a purpose built place. But the place to switch off the water for my house and the two houses either side of it is in my basement, and I just think that's crazy. Why doesn't everybody have their own tap? It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> if you, if if you somehow meet and marry your neighbor, then it will become quite an incredible story. What can I say? <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, so we're already in quite a playful mood, but the next section, part two of this book, is called Poetry in Play. So tell me about how you came up with this theme. Of course, play is just another aspect of the poetry of everyday life. And what I started with was the poetry in sports. And the, the main sport that I personally play is ping pong or table tennis. And I realized through the years of playing the game, and I think most of the players know, is that there's an inner life to the sport, you know, and there's an inner life to cricket and baseball and, uh, and basketball. And, and the inner life is different from what somebody watches. It may have to do with the way it feels when a ball leaves your hand and is going to swish into the net. Um, it has to do in baseball with what people say was the sound of the bat hitting the ball when, some when the person who hit it knows that it's a home run just by the sound that it makes. Um, and, and it's also about the zone that people get in when they're, uh, when they're playing a sport like ping pong. And it's also about the poetry people use to describe the game. And the example that I used is from a famous basketball player named Clyde Fraser, uh, who is a player for the New York Knicks in basketball and then became an announcer. And here's him calling the game. He describes the players as swishing and dishing, shaking and baking, Moving and grooving, wheeling and dealing, dancing and prancing, improvising and mesmerizing, or stumbling and bumbling, and when they foul, hacking and whacking. His commentary has even been mapped on how many Clydeisms he uses in any given quarter. Uh, so, so, and yet, to describe some years ago, one of the players' perfect pass, flying in midair towards the basket and going for a slam dunk. Dunk, Fraser, I write, had to turn to the sacred. Amazing grace, he said. So, so I talk about that idea of, of the feeling of playing a sport and the, the inner feeling of how good it feels to hit a shot correctly. Uh, somebody was telling me that when they play golf and they hit the shot correctly, it just feels so wonderful. And yet the next 20 times, they'll miss the ball altogether with their golf club. So, so I, I feel like even in, in something that is as nonverbal as sports, there's a tremendous amount of poetry um, 
there's a tremendous amount of poetry in, in the sports and in the way people define them and the nicknames that the players develop. And, and in some ways, that's what makes the game so enjoyable. Yeah, this reminded me a lot of dancing, actually, because I don't play any sport, but I, I dance Argentine tango. And it reminded me a lot. It, it doesn't really matter what you look like so much. It's what it feels like. <laughs> yeah, and we, uh, we were in Argentina pretty recently working on another project. Uh, and uh, Anna Cara is one of the folklorists who studies the tango. And the tango has all kinds of language that uh, she talked about on, on how you how you say yes to your partner or no to a partner, uh, just how the moves feel. And, and you know, it, dance is a wonderful metaphor for, for the poetry of everyday life. Uh, and I feel like that's, you know, it's you're embodying the poetry when you dance. Uh, it's you're you're internalizing it into your movements. And if it feels poetic, uh, you know. I think even a dancer will agree that it feels poetic. It feels like it's it's meaningful to be able to move that way. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's what I strive for. I'm not sure, <laughs> sure it very often manifests, but I'm certainly trying to get that feeling. <laughs> well, you get it you get it occasionally. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> In one of the chapters in this section, you talk about um, having an online game of backgammon with your father, which I love this description. It was this connection to your father across continents. Yes. Uh, my dad and I, you know, he, we used to play chess uh, a lot when we, were, when we were kids. When I was a kid, he taught me how to play chess. And I never really liked backgammon very much, although I appreciated the fact that he loved it so much. And we, when we went to the beach, he would have the game of backgammon on his lap with his partner. And my mother would be sitting beside him and they would be drinking drinks that were sold on the beach. And uh, it was a, it was a kind of a paradise. But when he got older, uh, it was not easy to communicate with him uh, living on a different continent. And he had started playing backgammon with different people around the world. So I suggested to him that we should have a game of backgammon online, and uh, and it 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 uh, kind of took off. But the way in which we would play is we only moved once a day, and uh, it was uh, kind of wonderful that once a day I would get to think about my dad, and he would get to think about me during those moments when we each made one move on the backgammon set. Um, and the way I end that chapter is to write. But three months later, he stopped moving in a round where he should have had just a few pieces left to take off the board to win the, win the game. With his sight now impaired and his difficulty negotiating the computer, I knew that it was becoming just too hard for him. The game remained unfinished, and he passed away a few months later. Several weeks after his death, I received a note from itsyourturn.com telling me that I had won the game. 
my opponent, the note said, had timed out. Um, and I'm really thankful to have had those moments with my dad before he passed away. And, um, you know, relationships are built on ways in which people share joy. Uh, you know, there also may be a lot of sadness. You know, my dad wasn't always the easiest person to get along with, but there were certain things that we could do uh, that brought us together and that are a big part of the way that he's remembered and the way I remember him. Right, right. Um, speaking of things that people share, the last section in this part is titled Inventing a Language for Love, Sex as Poetry and Play. And I was struck here when you talk about how even sexting can be a form of storytelling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably the most out there chapter in this book. <laughs> I, 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 I kind of amazed that I actually wrote it and put it out there because folklorists don't, uh, people who talk about play and people who talk about folklore almost never uh, talk about sex, uh, you know, whether, and of course, you know, if sex is interwoven with fantasies, you know, there's, there's fantasies in the way people talk to each other in the sounds that people exchange and in the, and in this sexy stories that people exchange all texts. Um, so uh, there is a, a language that, that is there. Uh, the, one of the people that I uh, interviewed, Julia Hutton, who wrote a book called good sex years and years ago in the, in uh, my interviews with her was saying that, you know, one of the things that may be lost as pornography and things like that get more and more explicit is the language around sex. Uh, that's really, uh, as in, as, as in any form of play or as in any form of sport, it, it has a lot of poetic power. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea that I end the chapter with is that, you know, we testify to the power of sexy words and language in the beating of our hearts. Uh, our hearts beat faster uh, when we're worked up. And um, I feel like the, the kind of language that people use in their sex play is, is worthy of being considered a part of the poetry of everyday life. Absolutely. One of the things that I really appreciated in this chapter, you write, uh, part of the language of sex too is indirection. It's not just about being precise or saying, should I put my hand a little higher? <laughs> we need to use language that conveys openness, playful language to bridge the awkwardness. Did I write that? I didn't. I couldn't have. <laughs> uh, I, maybe you're quoting someone. Let me just, I think it could possibly from, be from Julia Hutton. <laughs> but it's great anyway. <laughs> Okay, so moving on. I think this is the longest section, actually. The next section, part three, is poetry and service. And this is about how poetry can help us in times of need. Yeah, so, so the way I start out the chapter uh, is to talk about a tradition that started in our family. Uh, when we once, one week a year, our extended family on my, on my wife's side, Amanda's side, we go to the beach, and Amanda's dad was a big poetry lover, and he would always be quoting poems or quoting limericks to us. Uh, 
And we decided that we would start a tradition of having a poetry night one day, one night of the week during uh, the time we were at the beach. And it's become a tradition that continues to this day. Uh, and what, what, I, what, what I was amazed at is how the poems that people shared during poetry night would express something about their personality. Uh, Lucas, for instance, a forester and environmentalist, as I write in the book, never misses a chance to share Shelley's The Cloud, which he reads in full. And in the book, I quote in part, I am the daughter of earth and water and the nursling of the sky. I pass through the pores of ocean and shores. I change, but I cannot die. And each year, each time he reads that poem, he always says, I just think it's amazing that a poet could capture the hydrological cycle so well. That's so him, you know, it's so him. Uh, and that was just a sign of how what this, the poems that people share is really, you know, remembering sometimes their mother or their father uh, or uh, something that once happened in the family and that the poems themselves are really uh part of the family sharing something that may have been written under totally different circumstances in a whole other world. And it's been described as the mysterious way that, that a poem will travel and be completely reinvented in the here and now when it's told. And my one regret in writing this book was that when Lucas died uh, a, few, a few years after my book came out, on his deathbed, he asked us to read a lot of different poems to him, and, and he used poems in really an incredible way. Uh, he, would, he would still remember poems, and, and he used the poems to ease his final passage in a, in a really moving way. And uh, I never had the chance to include that chapter in this book, uh, and I regret that. There's no, that's one thing about a book. You can't... You can't uh, you can't modify it once it's done unless you republish it. And I, I was thinking about this when I was looking at the chapter about AIDS, about the AIDS, the AIDS crisis, now that we're in a lockdown with a different epidemic, but also an epidemic that's taking many, many thousands of lives. And I, I had the opportunity to interview some of the patients uh, with AIDS, and some of them were were themselves writing poems for Lila Zeiger's roving creative writing class at the Greenwich Village uh, Center, where a lot of AIDS patients would go for lunch. And for instance, Carlos Bermudez was one of those poets who passed away from AIDS. And in his poems, he struggled against the demon of drugs, fighting the battle all of us wage each time we summon the will to resist putting something into our mouths or body for a quick fix of momentary pleasure. Your soul, he writes, has a good guy and a bad guy. When the bad guy does something, the good guy feels it. The good guy tries to tell the bad guy, you're not supposed to do that. And the bad guy says, you can't tell me what to do. Um, and he was one of the poets whose ashes were kind of kept in the center uh, after he passed away. Um, another very 
meaningful um, person who I got to know, and sort of one of the wonderful people, uh, who was also a poet, was Eileen Catalano, who was a, a, a drug addict and died of AIDS as well. And she had written this poem, Needles, all of my life, to get immunized for school with a hoop and a thimble for flower, for flower embroidery, on the hems of sheets, knitting potholders, hooking rugs, needles, and then the changes. What a mysterious metamorphosis. Works, works, works. I can still hear Flacco hawking the gimmicks on his corner in the shooting galleries, the gaunt faces waiting to feed hungry veins staring at the bloody cups of water holding needles. Um, and, and she wrote about, one day I interviewed her and I just turned on the tape recorder and she was just so poetic in the response she gave about having AIDS. Since I learned I have, had, have AIDS, I've tried to find closure on emotional issues that I probably would not have thought about until I was very old. But because I'm not going to be very old, or at least at least it looks that way, you know, I've thought about my life and I myself am surprised about the things that surface as turning points or moments of special significance for me. Um, and she talks about you know, my life, she said, for instance, I've had to come face to face with my own mortality in order for the years of my active heroin addiction to take on meaning, because that behavior, even though it looks meaningless and negative and stupid to other people, you have to realize it's the best attempt that a person can make to stay alive. And if the best attempt you can make to stay alive is to punish and mutilate yourself and celebrate death through a blood ritual every day, the things that are causing you to see your life that way are really important. My life is really chaotic and it's unrehearsed. There's no guidelines for how to drop dead when you're, when you're young. I've learned from other people here by watching the way they are dealing with it. I don't know what is normal for this situation and I don't think anybody else does either. Gosh, I'm practically in tears just listening yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is also the same person who, in looking back and, and trying to make meaning of, of what she's gone through, she's also talking about the joy of having been totally out of it with a friend of hers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, a, there's a wonderful line. With, uh, her best friend, Kat Yellen, uh, goes on to say at, at, the, at the memorial for Eileen, and we did a lot of destruction. You know what, though? In the lowest, darkest, deepest, murkiest elevation of addiction, we loved each other. We loved each other's souls. You know, I keep flashing on all the hysterical stuff we did. We never slept, never. And she would spaz out, you know. We'd spend all day getting a hit together. And since we never slept, we'd fall asleep in midair holding the cooker. And she'd spaz and everything would go flying. It's the dirtiest, darkest stuff. But you know, I can laugh about it today. I still lust after the damage we shared so lovingly. Um, she's an incredibly poetic person. 
uh, both of them. Uh, I was honored to know both of them, actually. This is also the section in which we find the um, poems that were shared after September the 11th, which you mentioned much earlier. Yes. Um, and these were these spontaneous poems that were appearing on street corners, right? Yes, yes. and especially in the early days of the, uh, after the September 11th attacks, a lot of the poems were just anonymous, put up anonymously. Um, some of them were well-known poems that people just put up. Other ones were, were original. Um, you know, one of my, my favorites of those scrawled on a piece of paper, which was anonymous, was called To the Towers Themselves. They were never the favorites, not the Carmen Miranda Chrysler nor Rockefeller's magic boxes, nor the empire, which I think would have killed us if she fell. They were the two young, dumb guys, beer drinking, downtown MBAs, swaggering across the skyline. Now that they are gone, they are like young men lost at war, not having had their life yet, not having grown wise and softened with air and time. They're like cannon fodder, like farm boys throughout time, stunned into death, not knowing what hit them, and beloved by the weeping mothers left behind. Now, speaking of metaphors, that's amazing. That's an amazing metaphor. <laughs> it really so, is. So, Do you want to talk about any other parts of this section before we move on? I mean, I talk also about, you know, because I feel like it's kind of a lighter part of the book. I talk about favorite restaurants. And about the uh, the art of, you know, how all of these immigrant groups who have come to New York City, um, and in some ways they're in my thoughts right now because so much of New York, for me and for many people who visit here, is just defined by the wonderful variety of ethnic restaurants run by immigrants, uh, oftentimes who are the most hard hit, who are the in this time of a lockdown and trying to get aid for something like the coronavirus uh, epidemic, there's, there's hardly hard to imagine how they'll survive. And yet they've been such a part of New York City's fabric. They've come to America with, you know, their cooking, and they've tried to figure out how to use American ingredients to make all these wonderful Thai dishes or Chinese dishes or Philippine dishes. And they've, they've created a, a really a kind of... Uh, poetry of taste that I talk about in the book, uh, especially in my own family, those restaurants that we love so much and those tastes of our favorite dishes, you know, they're part of the poetry of everyday life for us. Some of it we can express, some of which just is in the mmm that happens when you really taste something so good. So, so I stretch the poetry of everyday life to include those, those wonderful restaurants, those wonderful tastes. And uh, my thoughts go out to them, especially at this time. Me too. Yes. All of us, I think. I think you of those people. I love this part in this chapter where you, you're at a Filipino restaurant and you ask, uh, you ask about the origin of your family's favorite appetizer, the goat curry wrapped in a scallion pancake with mango chutney. Where in the Philippines does that come from, you ask? <laughs> yeah. And he answers, the origin of goat curry is that we lived in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and it's a West Indian community. So that's my own take on their goat roti. 
I used a scallion pancake instead of roti for the bread. It's what I call fusion confusion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm glad you talked about that. Definitely is in a lighter vein, and we can all do with some of that at the moment. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, we missed it. And that's what the way I start the chapter is when those restaurants are gone, you know, the tastes are gone forever. So, uh, you know, there, there's something ineffable about something that you tasted once and you'll never be able to taste again. Right. Then we come to uh, part four, poetry in the life cycle. And this is about poetry and rites of passages and other aspects of the life cycle, including poetry of death and death rituals. Can you tell us about this section? Yeah, I've been, but one of my earliest papers in folklore was to talk about how every phase of the life cycle has a different kind of folklore associated with it. Um, you know, we, and, uh, and you could actually chart out, you know, what kinds of folklore are associated with each age. And even though it's different for every person, uh, there's always a way in which uh, they're, they're at whatever age you are, you're, you may be talking about a children's game or about a birthday custom, or you may be talking about a, a memorial or, or, a, or about cremation. Uh, so, so every phase of the life cycle has its own folklore. Uh, I, I also devote a chapter to what is called the, the human unit of time. Uh, it was originally a concept that Margaret Mead came up with in her book, Blackberry Winter, in an effort to visualize a child as a grandparent and with the eyes of another generation to see themselves as children. So the human unit of time is defined as the space between a grandfather's memory of his own childhood and a grandson's knowledge of those memories as he heard about them. This human time span, based on experiential reckoning rather than scientific exactitude, therefore stretches from our memory of ourselves as children to our grandparents' memories of their own childhoods, ultimately encompassing five generations. Elders bracket the human unit of time with their memories on one side and their legacies on the other. Um, and I, I've thought about that. I think it's a concept that's actually very important in folklore because folklore often talks about, talk about living memory and what distinguish, distinguishes folklore from historians. And I think that the human unit of time, which is, is kind of a hundred year period, is, is very significant in the way we view our lives. Most of us are, are concerned with how we'll be remembered you know, by our children and by their children and how we remember our grandparents, not so much how we're remembered in 500 years or a thousand years. Uh, I think that the, the human unit of time is a, a, a way of thinking about life and a way of putting the poetry of life into context. That makes sense. Absolutely. Another chapter you've got in this section is your body is symbol written in ash. And you're talking about how, however we choose to be disposed of, to put it, I put that in inverted commas, air, air quotes, is very symbolic of 
of how we've lived. And, and, and you start the chapter with this idea of a double coffin that you want to create, share with Amanda, <laughs> your wife, which <laughs> kind of lovely, but kind of macabre as well. And she didn't sound overly taken with the idea by the sounds of it. Yes, it wasn't. I, I had it all worked out. So there was nothing gross about it. So that we would, so, so that it would be like a canoe. And it would be at a, a kind of a, a angled down with a kind of slot in the middle so that when you had to undo the first person to put in the second person, you wouldn't have to see the skeleton of the first person. So you would just, that would be closed. And then you would lift this centerpiece and the two would roll together. And I thought it was an inspired idea. Uh, and my wife and I wrote a bluegrass song, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which is called Double Coffin. and. Uh, after that, my wife decided that it wasn't exactly her cup of tea, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so we decided we were coming up with other plans. Good. <laughs> then the penultimate section is entitled Poetry and You. Tell us about this section. One of the parts of the book, this actually comes a little bit before that, that I'm very fond of. And I felt like this book was an opportunity for me to kind of put my philosophies out there, you know, about how, how, you know, both poets and scientists have been very caught up with the idea that, as Einstein put it, the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. And I talk about the fact that, that, that in the poetry of everyday life, there is a certain eternal quality. Uh, as I put it in one of the poems that I in include in the book, once at the juncture of anticipation and memory, a gesture, a smile, a kiss, though it seems long gone, what happened is. And I, and I had this image, this metaphor that I use for imagining how life can be thought of as being eternal. And this is a section that me and the wonderful woman who helped me with editing this book, Caitlin Van Dusen, fought over endlessly trying to say this in a way that made sense. And here's what we came up with. Imagine you were traveling on a train at night, passing by a village with a row of houses in which all the lights are on. In front of these houses is a row of evenly spaced trees. As your train whizzes past the trees, it appears as if the lights of the houses are flickering on and off as the trees block and then reveal them. From our position moving through space and time, it appears that people are born, die, and disappear forever. They flare up, flicker, and are extinguished. But if we imagine their lives as the lights in these houses, there is a sense in which they continue to shine clearly, even though it doesn't appear that way as we move past them. We perceive time only because we are conscious observers moving through it, which is a kind of scientific concept as well as a concept that poets oftentimes use in their work as well. Um, and as, as uh, Mark Kaminsky, who I quote a lot in the book, says, the artist's secular sphere of spirituality occurs at the intersection of time and timelessness. Our goal is not a denial of death, but to hold eternity and death in a single thought. 
the artist's secular sphere of spirituality has always been my home address. I love that. I love that line. And, and uh, I was very happy to be able to include that philosophy in the book. And then what I go on to do on the um, ensuing sections is talk about the poetry in you. Um, one of the lovely images that I think about when I teach students and tell them the importance of discovering their own voice and, and really expressing the poetry of everyday life in their own voice is the idea of breath on the mirror. Um, the idea that in the old film noirs, cops often hold the mirror to the mouth of crime victims to find out if they are still breathing. Well, your own breath on the mirror is your writing and your expression and your, your creativity. And that's what makes you know you're alive. And I've had a lot of joy in the uh, more than a decade that I spent teaching creative writing to students at Cooper Union. And their, their words and their, their responses to all these prompts about the poetry of everyday life have been really inspiring to me. Uh, and it's really what made me want to write this book, uh, not so much as a how-to book, but as an expression of the many ways that you can put on that pair of glasses that sees life through the, light, through the lens of art and through the lens of poetry. And, and it's, it's, you know, I, I've, tried to, uh, I've tried to put that down in this book, you know, as clearly as I could. And, uh, you've, you know, it's, been a, it's a total pleasure for me to read parts of it again to you <laughs> as well. Good. This section that you're talking about is something that Amy Schumann wrote about in the review that I mentioned at the start of this interview, because you had talked about how you report in that in, in your creative writing courses that you ask students to write, I am from, in which students reveal their distinctive origins and backgrounds evoked in resonant detail. And Amy is saying how she tried this exercise with her students in a folklore class. And the result was a range of poems from the starkly confessional to the humorous and absurd. And the students reported that it was a transformative moment in the class, a collective and individual practice that served as a turning point in their understanding of folklore as a practice built in form and offering possibilities for creative performance. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to do that if I ever have a chance to teach folklore again, too. It sounds like a wonderful idea. Well, you should try it. You know, I mean, everybody should, should write their own uh, I am from poem because it just it's just a way of getting at, at the details that define us. Um, and, and I think that Amy's a folklorist as well, and, and many times folklorists are thinking of folklore as other people's artistry, and, and instead of seeing it from my artistry, it's, it's my expression as well. Even, even when folklorists are writing about others, they're also writing about themselves, and, and I think the I Am From poem forms a bridge between people thinking about uh, what are the traditions that I want to look at, explore, and, and, and study as a folklorist, and what are my own traditions, and what is the relationship between them? And I think that's one of the things she was talking about when she mentions those I Am From poems in the book. Um, the, uh, you know, one of my favorites 
because it's just such a distinctive voice. It's from a woman who took my class named Alicia Vasquez. Uh, sometimes there, there are people in my life, and it comes up when you ask about the book, that are in multiple chapters of this book. Uh, I met Alicia because she had, she had written one of those poems that was left after September 11th. And she had actually signed her name on, on her poem, A. Vasquez. And I couldn't find, I, when I was looking for her writing that chapter, I couldn't find any A. Vasquez in the New York City phone book. But a friend of mine was putting, wanted to put her poem to music and did a broader search. And she lived outside of New York City. And they found her. And then uh, she, her poem was in that book. And then her I Am From poem was written in my class. And uh, she's from Brooklyn. And it goes like this. It's so, such a Brooklyn poem from Alicia Vasquez. I am from ducking bullets by the bedroom window with mom in 1974, where a tree grows in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. I am from controlling the flow of fire hydrant water through a canister of Chef Boyardee while dreaming of swimming in a real pool one day. I am from waiting for Mr. Softy's beautiful symphony. I am from listening to Cuban beats and salsa picante rhythms on a transistor radio while camping out on someone else's car. I am from the cheese line at Kings County Hospital and waiting online for a free summer meal. I am from getting beat up in the bathroom at public school 221 when I was the only Spanish girl there. I've always loved her lines in particular, and they're a great example of that I am from poem. That's extraordinary. Yeah, I'm very inspiring, I think. It makes me want to go and write one of my own for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Although I wouldn't be able to do anything like that, anything as good as that. So the last section is called Poetry in Stone. Can you tell me what this section is about? The, the chief chapter that I worked on that was part of this is that um, I built a stone wall a dry stone wall in my backyard, uh, probably trying to impress my wife who had done a project on stonemasons. And I realized that to do it, I had to give up my poetry writing in the morning to go out and work on the stone wall. And I started to realize that my journey to build that stone wall brought me back to poetry Searching for stones took me into crooked streams and vacant lots near our home and down to the rock beaches that run along train tracks in North Yonkers. It took me back to a childhood foraging in vacant lots. I once again became Steve Zeitlin, master of creek beds. The rock-strewn lots triggered memories of the way the bottoms of my feet took on the shape of the uneven stones. I recalled the way my body assumed the form of boulders as I clambered over them, the way a small rock rested in my hands. The experience of writing a poem I wrote in the book embodies some of the same joy. Words take your shape as you wander through creek beds of syllables with your own life rolling over them. I discovered the thrill of unearthing the right rock for a particular spot in the wall just as I would sometimes come upon the perfect word for a poem. Stones, like words, are everywhere. The trick to building a dry stone wall is to find stones that fit perfectly into one another and form a structure that won't collapse from its own weight. 
and I go on with that metaphor as I want to do. Uh, and I end the chapter by saying, my stone wall was an exercise, not in writing, but in composing with stone. From nature's wondrous shapes, I labored to create a functional work of art in my backyard. Life is short. The material is untractable. Undaunted, I continue to build walls of rocks and words on the unyielding landscape. How else to get blood from a stone? And that's the way I end the book. That's such a powerful ending. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful book. Thank you very much for talking to us all about it. Steve, before you go, can I ask you maybe what poetry you're finding in the current coronavirus situation? Is there an example that you would like to draw our attention to? Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, I want to just give you some of the incredibly touching lines that people have 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 shared. Is this from It Takes a Pandemic, the um, online multiple author poem you were describing earlier? Yes, yes, it is. I mean, it's, to give you some lines, I mean, it takes a pandemic to realize everything is impermanent. On my walk through Greenwich Village, I'm so aware of other walkers like animals looking at each other to keep distance, spaced apart, eyeing each other not to get too near. It takes a pandemic to people for people to come out on their rooftops and balconies and everyone to back, bang pans and applaud essential workers. It takes a pandemic to feel that it's all truly out of my hands. It takes a pandemic to finally ask, how does my survival, my family's survival, relate to that of the whole earth's? It takes a pandemic to let the voices of the goddess shine forth. It takes a pandemic to wake up again to life's flashing, transient nature, to call another old friend and another, and to take care of as many as I can, starting with stretching and then typing, weaving, writing old and new, and then finding a way to go on. Those were contributed by Leanne Brown. <coughs> um, you know, they're wonderful. Um, to take the electricity that passes between us when we touch and reverse the current. To realize that we are completely unprepared. To face the possibility of dying alone. To make us feel that we are all under house arrest. To tell my friends who ask about my precautions. When I come back from my walk, I wash my hands and prepare for death. Then I say, lighten up. If death doesn't show, I watch opera. <laughs> to make me confront my own mortality and reflect on the strength of my faith in God and humanity. To comprehend the circumference of our world is one. To expand the circle of those you love, you know, to appreciate the sweetness of a deep cleansing breath. Inhale, exhale. For planes to sleep. Sky to heal, men to weep. And maybe I'll leave it at that. People can go to the poem. I'll post a link to the poem in the notes that accompany this podcast as well. Okay, great. Fantastic.
Well, Steve Seitland, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the poetry of everyday life, storytelling and the art of awareness. And this is a reminder to listeners that the New Books in Folklore podcast is just one of many channels on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin and thank you for listening.